Matthew 11, starting with verses verse 28 through Matthew 12, verse 14. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it up? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is God's word. We're looking at the moment then at Matthew 11 to 13, this section of uh, Matthew's gospel. We've said that the gospel of Matthew really is in five main sections. The main sections end with this little phrase, when Jesus finished saying these things. And so 11 to 13 is one section largely concerned with opposition rising up to Jesus and uh, what happens as a consequence of that. And that opposition is very obvious in uh, chapter 12 in particular. Uh, The first half, really 1 to 14, um, is concerned with rejection. And when you get to the second half, which will in two weeks' time, uh, then really the issue is persecution uh, coming against Jesus as he's accused of blasphemy. Nothing new for Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. I mean, opposition's been there since he was born and Herod's tried to kill him uh, as an infant. So nothing new, but there's a real escalation here. And in this little section, particularly 12, 1 to 14, the issue is what is lawful? That's what they're going to get upset about, those who oppose Jesus. So verse 2, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Verse 4, they're doing something which is not lawful for them to do. Verse 10, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 12, therefore it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The issue is what is lawful. And you may well sit there and think, well, that's not very interesting. (laughs) This is... What is this? Some sort of arcane debate about what is lawful to do on the Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, or not. That isn't wildly exciting. I mean, you and I, we may disagree on whether 
you should go to Waitrose on a Sunday or whether you should return an email on a Sunday. We may disagree on those things, but I've yet to draw to the point of wanting to kill you over them. And yet at the end of this section, verse 14, there's this debate, what are we allowed to do on a Saturday? And the Pharisees, they plot and they want to kill Jesus. So there's clearly something a little bit more than just a debate on should we go to shopping or do shopping or not. It's a bit more than that. And essentially, you've got here a group of people who are obsessed with the wrong things. I don't know if you work with or know people like that. Um, when I was a, a few years ago, when I used to be a school teacher, it's quite useful having perfectionists work for you, but quite annoying as well. I don't know if you're in any sort of management. Perfectionists, they're useful, but annoying. They're useful because they do things to a high standard. They're annoying because they obsess about it too much. So when I was a school teacher... Um, we had, what, in the sixth form, six football teams. It was, you know, it was quite a big sport, and so quite extensive um, uh, sports grounds. Now, the first 11 pitch for the best team in the school, the first 11 pitch was magnificent, it's fair to say. Whenever any other school came there, they said, this is the best pitch we've ever played on. I mean, the groundsmen were good. They did a good job. The downside with that was whenever it rained, the phone would ring. I'm afraid you can't play on the first 11 pitch this afternoon. There's just, it'll just cut up a little bit. There's rain. And you have to have repeatedly this conversation. Brian, your job is to make the pitch correct. I know you've created a thing of beauty. It isn't to look at. It is to play upon. We'll be coming down this afternoon. Do you have sort of work with people like that? It was the same with um, uh, in that setup. The, uh, the guy, the, the, the internet, um, what do you call it? The, uh, the computer team. This wonderful internal network, very clever, sophisticated for the time. I mean, it's sort of like very outdated now, I'm sure. But at the time, he was very proud of this sophisticated network. And occasionally, he'd burst in and say, it's, it's ridiculous. We must stop the children using the internet. No, no. No, Colin, your job is to provide a network for people to use. You've created a thing of beauty, I know. But it isn't just to look at. It is actually to be used and to be fixed when it goes wrong. You know, it's obsessive, obsessive, which is good. They created something very impressive, but a little annoying when you want to use it. Obsessed with the wrong thing. And that is the issue going on here in uh, chapter 12. Now, last time, as we uh, just had read last time, we looked really at just at those verses 11, 28 to 30, this wonderful promise that Jesus makes that all of us live our lives with burdens placed upon us of expectation in some way. And we weary ourselves trying to fulfill these burdens. But Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Ultimately, you are made for me. You find your satisfaction, your salvation in me and not in anything else. But you come to verse, uh, chapter 12, and here is a, a sort of a case study. It's not just random that it's here. Matthew says, oh, by the way, while we're talking about burdens, here's a burden. Here's a burden, okay? The amount of rules and regulations that the religious teachers of the time, the Pharisees, placed upon people. Unrealistic burden. So chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, in the Old Testament, God declared there should be a Sabbath. Six days you shall labor, and one day you shall rest from your normal labor. So if you were an accountant, 
Don't do accountancy on the day of rest. If you are a fisherman, don't go fishing on your day of rest. If you're a farmer, don't farm on your day of rest. That's what God said. Read it, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, very clear. It didn't say don't do anything. And yet, upon top, um, um, uh, by the, uh, the, the Jewish law of the time, this was really detailed down. So there were 39 different activities in, which were spelled out that they mustn't do. So you got a little bit obsessive about work prohibited on the Sabbath. And of course, that still happens today. So I don't know if you saw in the press uh, last week. Uh, there's, um, on the North Circular in Finchley, they've got the first hands-free pedestrian crossing because uh, the local synagogue on one side of the North Circular complained to the council that said, look, when we want to go to synagogue on, a sa- on the Sabbath, we can't push the button for the green man because that's work. And so you need to create a hands-free because we're not allowed to use electricity on the Sabbath as Orthodox Jews. And so now there's this sort of, uh, and, that's a, uh, and that's okay. You know, you're not pressing, apparently, you know, that's okay. So you've got a hands-free green man. Now, that is layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of law upon what God actually intended. He said, stop your normal work on the Sabbath day. But it, you know, he didn't say you can't cook. Didn't, none of those things. Didn't say you can't use electricity. Obviously, he didn't have electricity. But um, see, all the, this has been built. So this burden, what was meant to be a useful day, a day of rest, now uh, obsessive uh-oh, I know, what if I flush the toilet? Uh, is that, oh, I don't know. Can someone, where's a rabbi who can tell me what I'm allowed? It becomes very stressful rather than genuinely a day of rest. So chapter 12, verse 1, when the disciples pick corn, they're not breaking an Old Testament law. Now look, if they were, you know, they're fishermen picking corn. And it's just grabbing a little bit and having a nibble as they wander by. They're fishermen. Now, if they happen to be walking along the lake, you know, with a bit of fishing wire and a hook on the end and were sort of surreptitiously, you know, wandering along and hoping they'd catch a fish, maybe you could accuse them of doing some work. But they've just nabbed a little bit of corn and eaten it. And yet, verse 2, the Pharisees are there. I don't know what they're doing following them, but the Pharisees are there. (laughs) Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? uh, After work one night, you go out and you have a drink with a couple of colleagues and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's miles away from work. You've gone somewhere different. And then um, the boss, the MD, the CEO, whoever it is, sort of bursts into the pub and says, Ah, oh, I found you, you drunkard. What? You mustn't be drunk at work. Well, I'm not at work. I'm not drunk. Have you followed me here? That's just a bit weird. And that's what's going on here. These people are a little obsessive uh, in their behavior. So an accusation is made. Your disciples are doing something unlawful. Now, Jesus' reply, on one level, it's very, very simple. And it actually is quite complicated as well. So let's try and break it down by saying uh, three things I think he really wants to highlight. Some laws are greater than others, verses 3 to 5. Jesus is greater than the law, verses 6 to 8. And then lastly, mercy is greater than rituals, 9 to 14. Let's take them in turn. Verses 3 to 5, then, some laws are greater than others. Let's look at Jesus' reply. First, verses 3 and 4. David trumps the law. He answered them, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? This is in 1 Samuel 21. You can read it yourself later. What did they do? 
He, David, entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Now, you know, what's going on? Well, um, 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run for his life. Saul is trying to kill him. David's on the run, he's tired, he's exhausted. Now, they come to the tabernacle, God's dwelling place in the Old Testament. It's designed as to be represent God's palace, the fact that God dwelt amongst his people. Now, every Sabbath day in the tabernacle, the priests would lay out some bread on a table. I mean, no one ate it. God didn't literally come down and eat it, but he was sort of representing we're putting some food out for the king. And the following Saturday, next Sabbath, they'd take that bread away and put some fresh one, and the bread they took away, they'd eat. But only the priests are allowed to do that. David arrives, hungry, exhausted. I'm on the run. Um, got anything we can eat? No. Got any bread? Well, only the consecrated bread. That'll do. You're not meant to eat it. I'm really hungry. And they eat it. Okay. Now, okay. Now, I read that and thought, okay, that's interesting. But Jesus, how does, what's that got to do with what's going on? Your disciples wander through a field, grab a bit of corn, have a little nibble. You know, they're sort of having popcorn on us. You know, that's sort of equivalent. David, exhausted, famished, at the point of, you know, keeling over. Those two don't really seem sort of equivalent. What's Jesus's point? Well, at least this. David did something illegal, but the scriptures didn't condemn him for it. Oh, okay. Some laws seem to be greater than others. Okay, well, let's move on, because verse 5 becomes a little easier. David trumps the law in some way. He does something technically, which is not legal, but he's not condemned for it. Verse 5, I think this is even clearer, the temple trumps the law as well. Verse 5, Jesus essentially says, let me give you another concrete example that will really blow your categories open. Numbers Numbers 28, it declares this, uh, verse 5. Haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? So Numbers 28, it's the Sabbath. Everyone stop work. Apart from... Someone's got to run church. And technically that is work, isn't it? I mean, standing up and whatever, preaching and getting everything ready. I mean, technically that is work. So it's okay. Numbers 28 says, the requirements of the temple outweigh the fact that no one's meant to work. Because explicitly, Numbers 28 says, on the Sabbath day, the priests had to offer burnt sacrifices. Sacrifices that were... Um, made to reconcile God and the people. So every Sabbath day, burnt offerings. Essentially, what was being said, God, we can't come before you. You're holy. We're sinful. We'd be destroyed if we came before you. But these animals will die in our place. And God says explicitly, yes, yes, that's right. The demands of the temple, the demands that there is a sacrifice for sin, that is more important they're having a day off work. So the demands of the temple trump the demands of the Sabbath law. Okay. Do you see how that works here? Sacrifices that bring the people back into relationship with God, that's more important than the Sabbath. Now, ooh, okay, let's try and draw our thoughts together before we move on. Some laws, says Jesus, are greater than others. David, he doesn't really explain it in detail, but David trumps the Sabbath law. Sacrifices for sin, so that people can be reconciled with God, they trump the Sabbath law. They're more important 
for certain people. So we have to say at least this. You can't flatten the Bible and make everything absolutely important. Some parts of the Bible are more important than others. Some requirements, the fact that there is a sacrifice for sin in order to bring a holy God together with sinful man, that's very important, more important than some other rules. Try and give you an example. Uh, Another church I was in, not this one, happily. There was one guy I know who was just obsessed, obsessed with six-day creationism. God made the world literally in six 24-hour periods. And that's all he ever really wanted to talk about. He's a Christian, genuine. But you you, you meet him and say, oh, I know, hi, 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 how are you? How's your wife? Yeah, no, she's well. She's rejoicing that God made the world in six days. Yeah, no, she's well, thanks. What are you talking about? Did you watch the rugby yesterday? Yeah, yeah, I watched the rugby. Very impressive mankind. Amazing that God made man in one day, the sixth day. Yeah, for goodness sake, you know, it was just whatever. It just always seemed to bring the conversation round to, had to be literal. And after a while, it became obvious, if you didn't agree with him, and Christians do have disagreements on that, if you didn't agree with him, yes, he'd say, I worry for you, really, that you're really a Christian. I mean, you, you know, if you don't really hold that, you're not... Don't really take the Christian faith seriously. You're a bit of a half, a bit of a lightweight, a bit half-hearted. At which eventually someone had to sit him down and say, look, stop, stop. You've taken something which is peripheral to the Christian faith and made it absolutely central. Now, you and I, we both agree that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice and substitute to substitute for people who are sinful. We agree that, that is, that's important. But you've brought this other thing and made it so very central. And you're saying to people, if you don't believe that, wow, are you really a Christian? Really? Stop that. Stop that. You're being divisive now. And you've t- t- taken something from the periphery and brought it into the center. Don't do that. Some truths in the scripture are more important than others. Now, careful, be careful with that. I need to say that. It's not, Jesus is not saying that, any, that something that's in the Bible doesn't matter. But you can't just construct your own hierarchy of what's important and what's not. You can't come along to the Bible and say, well, I think love your neighbor is the most important rule there is in the Bible. My neighbor is quite poor. So once a month I go out and rob a bank. And give the money from the bank to my neighbor, because love your neighbor is more important than do not steal. And that's how I read the Bible. You can't do that, if you wondered. You can't just decide, which, I think that's more important than other. God cares about all truth. And everything that's in the Bible, he cares about. But some things are more important than others. How do you decide? Well, you work hard. You work hard and you talk to other people about their opinions, of course, or how they read the Bible, but it's all here. It's not smoke and mirrors, but some truths are more important than others. Okay, more straightforwardly, I think, Jesus pushes on, and uh, verses 6 to 8, Jesus is greater than the law. Verse 6. This, um, he's boxing him in a little bit more now. You like David? Yeah, yeah, we like David. 
You like the law? Yeah, yeah, we like the law. Uh, David broke the law. You, you like the temple? Yeah, we like the temple. Well, the temple trumps the law. Oh, so you can imagine them getting a little bit, oh, I'm not so sure about that. But verse 6 is the thing they're really not going to like. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. So the temple trumps the Sabbath law, and I trump the temple. I'm here now. And I'm more important than anything else you're talking about. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's somewhat provocative here, isn't he? He is saying, do you know what, the world, it's all, actually it's all about me. It's quite a bold statement he's making. My demands are more important than anyone else. And verse 8 Actually, the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself in Matthew's Gospel, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Not just I'm in charge and I determine which rules apply and which don't, but I'm the, I'm the culmination of the Sabbath. Actually, I'm the culmination of every, every Old Testament law. They all point to me, they find their fulfillment in me, they find their focus in me. They're always meant to do that. So let's think about the Sabbath. I mean, he doesn't go into detail with them there. But they should have realized the Sabbath law, it points to Jesus. Rest is found in him, as we thought last week. So classically, uh, um, in Exodus, uh, let me give you the, the Exodus 34, 21, the, the rule of the Sabbath there. Exodus 34, 21, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest you must rest. Now, what, is, what was the point of that? Six days you work, one day you rest, even in harvest. It's an agrarian economy. And you can imagine the people there saying, well, hold on, God. What if, what if the locusts come tomorrow? I mean, it's really nice and sunny today. What if it throws it down with rain and we can't harvest tomorrow? We don't want to wait till tomorrow. All sorts of things could happen tonight. Uh, we need to get the harvest in today. Trust me. Six days you work, one you do not. If you work seven days, you're not trusting me, you're trusting yourself. Trust me. Put aside your self-reliance and trust in me. That was the point of the Sabbath. And that finds its fulfillment, its culmination in Jesus Christ. Put aside your self-reliance that you think you can make yourself right with God, that you can live without him. Trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can restore you to relationship with God. He's the only one who can get you to heaven. He's the only one who can transform your life here and now. Trust him, not yourself. That's the point of the Sabbath. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So what Jesus is saying in these verses, 6 to 8, don't get excited by the Sabbath law or any other law and ignore me. If you get excited by any sort of church practice or ritual or law while you're not excited about me, you have completely missed the point. You've completely missed the point of what life is. And yet that happens quite a lot. So tragically, in the UK scene, you get a situation where some, not as, thankfully, but some bishops in the Church of England can get very exercised and excited about whether ministers are wearing the right garments and robes and far more excited about that than whether the gospel is being taught. I mean, that's madness. To be more excited about that than Jesus is madness. 
I got ordained uh, a number of years ago at the same time as a woman who described herself as a radical feminist theologian. And it's fair to say that theologically we didn't have much in common. Um, but she was quite an easy, um, very pleasant woman and quite easy to talk to in many ways. And we were talking on these things. Uh, she'd spent um, just short of a thousand pounds on her robes or vestments to get ordained in. I said, wow, I got mine for 68 pounds second hand. That's amazing. A thousand pounds on those things. That's, whew, why? Why, why do you, I mean, what do you get for a thousand pounds? What, you know, why do you think that's so important? And what she said was very striking. Well, as you know, I describe myself as a radical feminist theologian, which means essentially I've ripped up the Bible. I don't take anything it says seriously. And when you've ripped that up, you have to cling on to something. So I cling on to ceremony. How miserable. You got far more excited, therefore, about the clothing she wore than about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's desperate. Desperate. But you, you see, you reject Jesus, you have to, but you want to be religious. You have to cling on to something, something ceremonial. Miserable. Now, as I look around in front of me, I don't think many are in danger of making that mistake and spending a thousand pounds on clerical garments. Good for you. That's not the error. And yet, of course, the mistake can be if you have no real relationship with Jesus Christ or your relationship is, is distant, but you want some sort of religious fix. Well, then if, he, if, he, if he's distant from you, you'll cling on to something else, and you have to. You have to do that. So, of course, some folk go to church because of habit, because of upbringing. There's no real, actually, relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, oh, you know, how is your relationship? How do you speak to him? Huh? What? If you talk about repentance, look, Jesus actually demands that your life changes once you follow him as Lord. Calm down, it's a bit much. Um, my life sort of disturbed. I'll come. I'll, ha- I'll have a religious fix. That's okay. It's quite interesting. But I mean, to change my life, not too much. Too much. Calm, calm down. I just want something. I need a veneer of religion around me. But that'll do. Thanks. Well, of course, you, know, you get the funny situations where some who are genuinely Christians, but um, they can get really upset that they've it is, being left off a rotor, being put on a rotor. And they're more upset about those things than they are the fact that their prayer life with Jesus is almost non-existent. I just need the religious veneer. I need to hold on to something. I know my relationship with him is, actually, it's pretty feeble. But I'm going to get very excited about this instead. So I have my religious veneer. Or some people complain about the quality of a homeless, homeless ministry. It's not done well enough. You know, the quality of the clothes is not good enough, you know, the people, the, the people who go out, they're not committed enough, and they'll complain about that, and yet they never care about telling anyone about Jesus Christ. They go, what's gone wrong here? What's gone wrong? You need, I mean, telling people of their need of forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ is, that's the more, most important need anyone has. Because it's okay to be concerned about these other things, but we don't care about telling people of Jesus. We get obsessed about other things. Something's out of kilter there. Something's gone wrong. There's an imbalance. Jesus says to the Pharisees, look, I'm greater than any law. I'm greater than any ceremony. I'm greater than any practice. And if you get obsessive about those things, 
while you're not passionate about me. He's way out of kilter there. That's very unhealthy. Jesus is greater than the law. And then the last thing, verses 9 to 14, Jesus gives them a living example of this, that mercy, well, that's greater than any ritual. In one sense, here's just an example of uh, verse 7. Verse 7, he'd said to them, quoting Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he gives them an example of that in verses 9 to 14. Now, again, back in Hosea, Hosea 6, when God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he doesn't mean, look, the sacrificial system that I set up, can you just throw it all away? He doesn't mean that. He just means if you're obsessed with that while not being kind and merciful to people, you ignore the needs that are in front of your face. You've missed the point. You've got it wrong. You've just got empty religious ceremony. Verse 10, you can tell again the, uh, the attitude of the Pharisees. So let me pick it up, verse 9. Verse 9, Jesus, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, again, under the Jewish law of the time, you were allowed to heal someone on the Sabbath day if their life depended upon it. So if it's critical, you could do the healing. Non-critical, well, you could wait to the next day. I, I, that, to my mind, that means it's pretty stressful if you're in triage in Galilee in the first century. You know, someone turns up, you think, mm, can I heal them, can I not? I don't want to get this one. No, best go if they die overnight. Well, it's a slightly stressful job. You've got to make up your mind. Is it, is, it a, is it an obsessive emergency or not? So it's slightly stressful if you're a medic in the first century there. But Jesus really just exposes their hypocrisy. Verse 11. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Answer, yes, you would. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so he heals the man. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. What a contrast. Jesus, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus says, well, I heal. That's outrageous. We plot murder. That's okay. How do you, get, how do you think yourself into that sort of state? It's, it's very bizarre. And yet it is because they care more about, they're obsessing about their certain issues. They've got their pet topics that they love. And they're obsessing with the wrong things rather than caring and being obsessed about Jesus Christ. Jesus says, look, God cares a lot more about mercy than ritualistic religion. Again, he's not saying, look, the only thing you're allowed to do on a Sabbath, a Saturday for them, the only thing you're allowed to do is heal. Because, of course, you often read in the accounts, the four accounts of Jesus' life, people come to him for healing, and he says, no, I'm going off, and he goes off and prays. Because sometimes you need, you need, you need to do that. If you lack a vital relationship, a living relationship with the Lord, and you, you serve people, well, you'll either become very proud or very resentful. Jesus knows that. But a genuine faith will not justify ignoring the needs that are there in front of your eyes just to keep up a religious appearance, which is their concern. Mercy is greater than rituals. Now, these three things, 
see, you know, it's like a complicated little thing going on here. But Jesus says, look, some laws are greater than others. Some things in the Bible, they're central. My death and resurrection is central. You've got to take that absolutely seriously. Other things, sometimes they're less important than that. It depends what's going on. You've got to be wise, work out what the situation is. But some things are more important than others. Sacrifices for sin, they're absolutely central. I'm greater than the law. Don't get obsessed with minutiae while you're letting your relationship with me slip or have none. And mercy is greater than rituals or sacrifice. I care more about how you treat people than just a religious performance, okay? And you have to say, well, Jesus, how do you do, how do, you do on those things? Well, unsurprisingly, he does pretty well. I mean, he exemplifies those three little points that he makes. Some laws are greater than others. In the Old Testament, it becomes absolutely clear. A holy, perfect God cannot dwell with sinful people. It's impossible. And yet in Jesus Christ, God becomes a man and walks on this planet. Some laws are more important than others. Coming to save is more important. He's greater than the law. He's asserted that. Mercy greater than rituals. Well, Jesus shows that. His greatest act of mercy is his death. Of course, in his life, his life was one of repeatedly showing mercy to people who are in temporal suffering, healing those who are lame, healing those who are paralyzed, healing those who are blind. He gives himself, he's merciful in his life. But in his death, he's merciful to those with eternal problems, an eternity cut off from God. And actually, he demonstrates his mercy through sacrifice. In our household, um, Friday night, Friday night is family film night, uh, generally, and um, we watched quite a good one this week, uh, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. I don't know if you've come across it, but you probably haven't. Uh, it's basically a retooling of Greek legends. Um, it's quite fun. Let me commend it to you, uh, young children who like sword fighting. Um, uh, there's one scene in the film, it's quite near the end, I mean, it is a sort of Greek legend, so the hero Percy, slash Perseus, obviously. Percy goes down to the underworld, to Hades, to rescue his mother who's trapped in Hades. You'll realize this is not a true story. The, um, he goes down to Hades, and uh, at one point, uh, uh, Chiron, the, uh, the boatman of Hades, is uh, taking him uh, across the river Styx, essentially. And all these things come floating past him. Watches, diaries, letters... And uh, Percy says, well, what are all these things? And uh, the boatman, Chiron, says, are those the broken dreams, the ruined hopes of everyone who's down here in the underworld? And um, actually, it's quite a, uh, a powerful image. Actually, to be there is miserable. And it's a PG, so they don't go over the top. But it's clearly a miserable miserable place to be. You see, if you, get, if you realize, if you understand Jesus' mercy to you has been demonstrated in the sense because he sacrificed his life and he took hell so that you don't. Well, if you realize that, then you, you'll obsess about him and what he's done for you. And you'll be very merciful to the others around you, you'll realize, you, well, I have nothing to be proud about, and I see a need, and I'll do what I can to those in front of me, because I understand mercy. It's been shown to me, 
and I'll demonstrate it. I won't obsess about the wrong things. I'll obsess about Jesus Christ. I'll care about the people in front of me rather than just my issues. If you get mercy, that's how you live. Let's pray that we would. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that we would understand more of the mercy of Jesus Christ shown to us supremely in his death. That therefore we'd be thrilled with him, obsessed with him, not getting upset about the wrong things, not obsessing about ceremonies or rituals, our own thing that gets us upset in Christian circles, but obsessing about what matters, him. And showing mercy to others because we know we've been shown mercy. Help us to be balanced, to be realistic, to care about him above all else we pray. Amen.